back into Romans 8, our third week in Romans 8. Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you if you really believe this, that Jesus did it all for me. Jesus has done it all for me. It's because of what Jesus has done that I'm a child of God. It's because of what Jesus has done that I'm on my way to heaven. It's because of Jesus doing, doing, doing for me. Not because of my own doing. Some people would add this to it. Because Jesus did it all for me. Therefore, nothing is required of me. I hope you're not one of those people. Because what the Bible declares over and over again is that Jesus, in fact, did, it, did do it all for us. But at the same time, there is a lot that is required of us. A lot that is expected of us. A lot that we are encouraged to pursue and participate in. We're going to be looking at Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 this morning. Before we do that, I just want to challenge you with this idea, and that is, is do you know of any besetting sins that you have? In other words, sins that, uh, that just seem to be a particular bother to you. Maybe sins that you've struggled with, you, maybe you, you're aware of them and, uh, and you know that you need to work on them and you've tried to work on them and you've done this and you've done that and whatever. And, and there have been these times when you think you've really plateaued, you've finally gotten over the hump only to turn the corner and do the same sin all over again. If you're that person... And I'd be willing to bet that just about everybody in this room is. Then Paul wrote Romans 8.13 for you. And he wrote it for me. That's where we're really going to be focusing on more this morning. But let me read it for us. So then, brethren, we are, uh, are under obligation, not to the flesh. So we're not obligated to the flesh anymore. We're not obligated to our sinful nature or to the sin anymore. To live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. That you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is a lot in those few verses. I could easily spend the next three months doing nothing but Romans 8, 12 through 17. We've already touched on some of these things. Now, again, we've talked a little bit about besetting sins. Well, one of the things Paul is emphasizing here is this, is before we were driven by the flesh, before you became a believer, you were driven by the flesh, which in essence is your sinful nature. Sin is what drove you. 
But then, when you became a believer, and let me just say this, God is the one who makes you a believer. You don't do it yourself. God is, what the Bible describes all of us as being absolutely dead in our trespasses. Dead people can't save themselves in any way, shape, or form. There's not this vestige of righteousness in us that enables each of us at any time we want to, apart from any act of God, to come to Christ. It doesn't exist. That we are dead, absolutely dead in our natural state. Dead in sin. Nothing at all that we do brings any pleasure to God at all. Nothing. Paul has already described everyone in Romans 3.23 that, that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for everybody that has ever breathed air with one exception, and that one exception is Jesus Christ. But when you become a believer, there is a real change that takes place. Before Christ, sin is what controlled you absolutely and completely in everything. That as the Holy Spirit comes upon you and begins to change you, it's not an instantaneous change where you go from one point to the extreme other point. This is where we need to understand that there is something expected of us. To live a life in a manner that is worthy of our great calling. To live a life that is worthy of being called a child of the living God. To be a Christian. And a lot of that has to do with the world around us. We all know what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite who says, tells you to do one thing and they do something else. If, let me tell you, if our lives don't display Christ in what we do and how we interact with this world around us, their conclusion is going to be, rightfully, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You tell me to do one thing, but you do something entirely different. Do you think that's going to give us an effective witness in the world around us? One of the things that you and I need to do as far as the world goes, is to be honest with the world about our own sin. Because they do. Most of the people out there, and you know that for a time, as a, even into adulthood, I was not a believer. I thought you were all a bunch of hypocrites because what I saw in you was you claim this, that, or the other, but I didn't see you living it at all. I didn't see you any differently than I did the average person walking down the street. The manner in which you lived your life. I'm just telling you that was my perspective. I'm not saying that was necessarily a reality for all of you. But that's what I thought. My whole thing was this, is I'll believe it when you show me it. And I will not believe it until you do. Because until you do, as far as I'm concerned, you don't believe it yourself. Then when we come to faith in Christ, we're changed. There's an internal change that takes place within us. It's by the Spirit. The Spirit does it. 
So what Jesus talks about in, 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 in John chapter 3, when he's talking with a Pharisee, Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And he says later on, by the Spirit. Dead people can't cause themselves to be reborn. God's got to do it. Sometimes Paul here, he talks about the, the way it, we were as being the flesh. I mean, he's, talking about, he's not here talking about our physical bodies when he says flesh. He's talking about our sinful nature, that which drove us before. But now we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives within us. You know, it would be crazy for us to believe the Holy Spirit can actually live in someone and there not be real differences in the way that person lives. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You've become a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. He's driving home here in verse that we're no longer obligated to do what the old man did. That's no longer where our obligation is. Our obligation is to do what God wants us to do. The old man compared, or the old woman, old man, old woman compared to the new man, new woman. We're not the same people we were. Have any of you ever heard of a guy named John Owen? John Owen was one of those very prolific, one of the most prolific Christian authors that ever lived, a Puritan theologian in England back in the 1600s. He was one of the Westminster divines. Remember our Westminster Confession of Faith, our dearly beloved doctrinal statement? He was one of the authors of that particular document. When I was in seminary, I had a class with Sinclair Ferguson. I just loved it. I could sit and listen to Sinclair Ferguson do nothing but pray. Uh, but it was, it was very informative class. Because he had re- recently written a biography at that point on John Owen. John Owen is noted for, like I said, being one of the most prolific writers in all of Christian history. Uh, And he actually wrote an 80-page thesis on one verse in the Bible, Romans 8.13, called the mortification of sin in the believer. I read that then. I went back and reread it this week. Some people will think about the Puritans as being legalistic. Uh, there's some sense in which some of them were kind of legalistic and all of that. It's not what you find in Owen at all. I mean, in that treatise, he gives you very helpful, useful ideas about how to engage 
in putting the vestige of sin within you to death, realizing this, that you're going to be about this your whole lifetime, but it's, you're never going to do it. You're never going to actually kill sin. The only time that we're going to finally break free of sin is when either we die and our spirit goes to be in heaven with Jesus because it has to be glorified, purified, wiped clean completely from sin to appear in the presence of Almighty God without being utterly and absolutely consumed. Or if we're living at the time when Christ comes, then we will be glorified at that point. We will be made perfectly pure righteous in every way no vestige of sin left at all anymore that's the promise of the gospel that is God's purpose and end for his children and I don't know about you but I can't wait for that day imagine a day when Bucky's not going to sin anymore Ever. <laughs> it's kind of hard to where we're at right now. No, Bucky, I'd buy, I can say Bucky because he knows I'm just teasing with him. He's a great guy. One of the newer people in our congregation. I just love him and may bail to death. Uh, but don't you long for it? I mean, aren't you sick and tired of sin? You know, very often we're sick and tired of other people's sin. But aren't you sick and tired of your own sin? Really? Honestly, don't you want to be just to be done with it, throw it in the garbage can and walk away from it and never to raise its ugly head ever again? That day is coming. It will be gone one of these times, but for now it's just not. But I want to talk a lot this morning about Romans or 8, chapter 13. So the question is here is, what is, what is driving us mostly today? Are we driven more by the Spirit dwelling within us, or is sin having the biggest influence over us in what we do and what we say? We all struggle with what we call besetting sins, as we mentioned before. I would imagine most of us do at some time or other. I have my own besetting sins, things that you know, I struggle with for, time, for times, and then there are times when I really think that I've kind of got a handle on it only for, for things. Why is this stuff important? Why is it important that we're involved in, engaged in this putting sin to death within us? Well, you'll notice here, is God, it's not given to us as an option, isn't it? Paul doesn't suggest here that it's something that you ought to think maybe about doing. It would be good for you to do it. There's going to be some benefit to you if you do it. That's not what Paul says. He says this in the strongest language, that if you're not doing this, if you're not engaged in putting the sin, that vestige of sin that's telling you to death, then what's going to happen to you? You're going to surely die. What he's saying here is if you have no desire to do this, if your sin your, within you is not really of any concern to you, you just kind of learn that it's there, and I've just got to learn to live with it kind of stuff. What he's telling you here is this, is you are not a believer. 
because you will certainly die. And he's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about the spiritual death that unbelievers die. What he's saying here in the strongest words is you might think you're a Christian, you might have convinced yourself you're a Christian, but if you're not serious about your own sin, forget about everybody else's, if you're not serious about your own sin, then you're not really a believer. Pretty strong language. So this is not something you and I can just have a casual approach to. We can't just pass through Romans 8.13 and say, well, that's a pretty good verse and I'll think about it sometime or whatever. You understand that in the Greek, this is written in the very strongest language. It is something that you as a believer have to take seriously. Not casually. Not occasionally. It has to be part of your life that you live. This idea of mortifying the sin that is there. Sin kills us spiritually. It makes us spiritually ill. It keeps us from being where we could be. It keeps us from being where we ought to be very often. I think the worst part of it is this, is that sin that is still active in our life acts as a barrier between us and Christ. It creates some degree of separation between us and Him. It's a divisive factor in our relationship with him. Sin, my friends, is your very great enemy. It wishes to destroy you. That's its whole purpose in you. Is to bend you and break you and utterly and absolutely destroy you. Sin is always destructive. Always destructive. It has never accomplished anything good for anybody ever one time in all of existence. It is bad, bad, bad. No good. There's nothing good about it at all. I want to say this, that if you truly are in Christ, one of the things you need to be assured of this morning is you cannot fall away from Christ. If you truly are in Christ, you cannot fall away from Christ. What I'm telling you here this morning is your salvation does not depend upon your own weak ability to hold on to God. It is utterly, absolutely dependent upon God's Great strength to hold on to you. So I don't want a bunch of people walking out of here this morning just questioning whether they're believers or not. But I would be failing in my responsibility as your, your primary teacher here 
to pass through this verse lightly, because I think this is a verse that's probably not very visited very often by, by pastors in, 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 in today's church age. You're finding churches that speak less and less about sin and more and more about just kind of the, you know, the ushy-gushy warm feelings of being a Christian. But notice here, that's not what the, Paul, but what the Apostle Paul's doing. This is hard stuff. I mean, this is the hammer coming down on the anvil. It'd be nice to be able to water it down. But I'm just telling you what it says. Believe me, there's a part of me that desperately wants to water it down. It would make me feel a whole lot better about myself. But sin is serious business in the life of a believer, not something that we should trivialize, which is what we typically do with it. Let me just go through some of these. I was thinking the other day about what would be some, maybe some besetting sins that you would find common with Christians. One of those I thought about was pridefulness or arrogance. I mean, do you look upon other people as something lesser than yourself? Do you have a judgmental attitude when it comes to other people? you ever find yourself thinking or saying, look what so-and-so did, I would never do something like that? You need to be very cautious about that kind of stuff because my experience is this. You make a statement like that, you even think something like that, there's a good chance God's going to let you see exactly what you really are capable of doing. Let's remember, you're the horse. Sin is, in, is the horse in you, and God has the reins. God is the one who restrains it. And it's true for the world, too. What about idolatry? Do you think that would maybe be common for believers maybe to be a sin that they might struggle with somewhat, where they know honestly that there are things in their life that they put before Christ, before God? Things that are obviously more important to them than their relationship with Jesus Christ. Could be your children, could be your spouse, could be your job, could be your possessions, could be all kinds of things. The truth is this, I can say this for everybody in this room, is that is there's some degree in which we all continue to be idolaters. There are all kinds of things that we let get in our, in, in, in our way between us and Christ. What about jealousy? Are you ever jealous of other people? You ever think, boy, I wish I had what so-and-so had. Look at, you know, so-and-so. They don't seem to like they work very hard in life and they have all this other kind of stuff and I've worked my tail off my whole lifetime and I don't have much to show for it. Jealous of the way that other people look.
What about self-abasement? I would imagine that is a, a self-abasement. I don't imagine that's one that most of you would even think about. What I'm talking about here is making too much of your own lowliness. In other words, looking upon yourself and not finding a whole lot of value there, and that basically is one of the things that depicts the way that you live your life. I'm nothing. I'm not important. I'm not of any consequence to anything or anybody. People don't flock to me. People don't love me. How dare you? How dare you commit that sin? Because that is a sin. Because your value is established by the cost of your salvation. The Son of God became man, lived a terrible life, died a horrible death for you to pay the price for you. That, and that alone, is what establishes your real true value. And what that says is this, is you're the most valuable or you're way up near the top thing in this whole universe. In all of existence beyond the universe. So big deal if other people look down upon you, don't look down upon yourself. You see, it's easy to sin sometimes when we think what we're doing really is the opposite. So again, are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh? When was the last time you even thought about it? Verse 14, for, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In other words, those who are still led by the flesh are still of the flesh. They're still in their sin. But if you are a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, then you're being led by the Spirit of God who lives within you. He dwells in you. You've become a residence of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't come and go. It's not like he comes and hangs around for a couple of weeks every year and then goes off somewhere else. But once he comes, he stays. He never leaves. There may be times when you have a sense, a greater sense of his presence, and other times when you don't have much of his sense of his presence at all, but don't think for a minute that that means he's left. He's there. 
Jesus said this. He said this to the, the disciples in that upper room. He said it to believers in the first century church, and he's saying it to you today, and that is this. I will send you a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. There are a lot of people today who really who have this idea that you know God only gives his spirit to certain Christians. That's not true. God gives his spirit to every Christian. Every Christian. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Not pater, which is the normal Greek word for father in the uh, Bible. Abba is an Aramaic title, derivative of Hebrew. But it's not just just dad or father or whatever. It, it, it is, is a title of endearment. It's more like daddy. That very special name that maybe you had for your father when you were a kid that no one else used. Through Christ, you've been adopted into the very family of God. Years ago, and you've heard me use this illustration before, but it speaks in a way that I don't think anything else can. And that was when I was a kid, I went to, uh, to a business on a little short business trip with my dad one time. And, and I met another kid about my age that was there that... My father was a manager of Belk Lindsay for years, and this other kid, his father was a manager of Belk Lindsay. Before we got there, my dad said something about this kid was going to be here, but you need to understand something that he was adopted, which I thought was kind of weird. My father was afraid I might say something out of the clear blue about whatever, and he just wanted to prepare me so I didn't say something stupid that might hurt this kid's feelings. Uh... So anyway, we were talking, and I didn't even bring it up. He brought it up. You know, and he told me how he had, had struggled with the whole idea of being adopted. And there were kids, when they found out about it, that would make fun of him. Why? I don't know. Just, there you go. There's the sin. There's that vestige of sin. These little kids making fun of someone because they, they were adopted. Sound crazy? That's reality. That's the world people live in. Doesn't make any sense at all. His father sat down with him one day and he said this. He said, you know what? When Johnny or little Alice, they were born to their parents, they got stuck with whatever they got. In other words, they didn't say, have any say-so in who they had for their child. What came was it. He said, you need to understand something. Your mother and I picked you. We chose you. We adopted you because we wanted not just a child, not just a son or a daughter. We wanted you for our son. 
So what I'm telling you, son, is this, is being adopted makes it better than the other way. Because you're with people who really, really wanted no one else but you out of all the others they had to pick from. And see, the same thing is true for you and I when it comes to our relationship with God the Father through Christ Jesus. We're going to be talking about being chosen by God later on down the road, which is not very often talked about in the church today. But it is very biblical. That's why we're going to talk about it. But see, this is what makes Ollie and Butch so special. And that is, they're believers today, not just because they just decided one day they were going to do it and whatever, and God was going to be stuck with them because they're going to lay hold of God, and God was going to have to take them into his, his family whether he wanted them or not. They were going to do the right things. That what the Bible teaches is very clearly, guys and gals, is this, is that Ollie and Bush are believers today because God adopted them into his family. He chose them because they were already special to him, even though they might not have been that special to other to people. Some people believe this, that the doctrine of predestination, election, etc., weakens the Christian faith. I'm telling you guys, it doesn't. What it does is it bolsters it. It strengthens it. It makes it more special. When you realize that you believe for one reason and one reason only, that is because for his own reasons, no one knows what they are, he picked you. He could have passed you over. He didn't. He wanted you. And he would settle for no one else in your place. You. Wow. Could you ask for anything better than that? Can you think of anything conceivably better than that? And in the end, who gets all the glory? The one who deserves it. Christ. Not me. Him. When you're a child of God, the Spirit convinces you of it. He bears witness with your own spirit that you're a child. There's a sense in which you can wrongly believe you're a child of God, but there's also a right sense in which you need to understand that you're a child of God, really and truly. Children heirs, 
Think about inheritance. We think about mothers and fathers leaving things to their children. Of inheriting. Now some of you may have inherited from your parents. Maybe you've gone out of your way to make sure that you're leaving something for your children when you leave. If you're doing that, I want to commend you for it because it is biblical. It's not just that we're heirs, we are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs to Christ. That we inherit what he inherits. We understand from our, our study of Revelation, that means the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Our eternal home where we will live with him and with one another. And guess what? Sin is gone completely. Never, ever a possibility of it again. God has completely obliterated it. It's gone. I don't know about you. I can't wait to get to the place where Keith doesn't sin anymore. Forget about everybody else. Now, there's a world around us that is enticing us over and over again with all the effort and power that it can muster constantly and continually trying to woo us away from Christ. I was thinking the other day that I have never, ever seen anybody violently murdered in reality. Period. On the other hand, Hollywood has helped me to see countless numbers of people violently murdered on TV and in the movies. Laurie will tell you, sometimes I watch movies that I probably shouldn't watch. And, and for a long time, you know, I'm thinking, it doesn't really affect me, you know. I, I understand, you know, it's all make-believe and, you know, stuff like that. And I like the, you know, some of the things and this, that, and the other uh, and whatever. But I would start watching something, and I'm looking at the violence. I think, why am I watching this? Do you not understand that it, did, did it, desensitizes you to the reality of the brutality of the world by just watching that kind of stuff. It lessens the impact upon you. It makes you more conditioned to accept stuff like that when it happens as being, well, it's just the way things are. can't take bad in expect good to come out of it it's never happened one time we've got to be careful what we feed our spirit with seriously Lori's back there going I've been telling you 
we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. Do I need to say anything? And what we've been talking about here already is it all what it's all about? So the worship team is going to come this morning and help us.